Welcome to the X Oilfield Resource Podcast with Reed Styles. I'm fascinated by people that took their experience in the oil and gas industry and successfully applied their specialties to other careers and industries. I'm interviewing X Oilfield professionals with the intention of sharing their stories to inspire others to explore new careers. Today I'm speaking with Jonathan Kemp. After graduating with his degree in chemical engineering and biomolecular engineering in 2011, Jonathan began working for Worley Parsons as a process engineer focused on the oil field. He transitioned out of oil and gas into the aerospace industry in 2016. He now works as a payload systems engineer for a NASA contractor focused on the International Space Station, ISS, headquartered in Houston, Texas. Let's blast off this interview by getting to know a little bit about you, Jonathan. Yeah, sure. So as you said, I've Stayed in Houston, and that's because I was born and raised here in Houston. Um, so I lived all my life here before going to college over at Georgia Tech uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. And as soon as I graduated there, I wanted to come back here to Houston, Texas. So, you know, with my chemical engineering degree in Houston, the obvious industry to go into was oil and gas. And I also had, you know, my dad was in the industry for 35 years. So I kind of grew up around it. I knew a lot about it. You know, I hear my dad talking about it. It was kind of a easy jumping stone, you know, from college back here to Houston. So now I'm living here. I, I love uh, eating out all the awesome restaurants around Houston. There's so many of them. I can't even keep up with them. But then I also enjoy cooking on the side, started barbecuing and smoking all kinds of meat. So that's a real fun adventure with uh, lots of burns and some cuts. But I'm learning my learning my way through it because it's all chemistry too. I used to brew some beer on the side. I haven't done that in a while. I should start getting back into that. But other than that, it's just, you know, typical traveling. I enjoy reading. I read almost every night before bed, kind of as the end of a, end of a day type nightcap. I mean, there are so many things I can't wait to unpack regarding your career. But one thing I think that's unique is that you're from Houston, you joined the oil field and started working for Worley Parsons, but then you transitioned to a new career that was also based in Houston. So it's cool that you were able to find new industries within your hometown and transition your career all without moving very far. So walk us through some of your first projects at Worley Parsons. What were you doing in the oil field? Um, the first project I did was a deep sea submersible off of um, the Gulf of Mexico, and I was working on the water injection system. So I was kind of designing the pumps and how to clean the water, um, how to store all the chemicals to clean the water, all the pipelines and stuff like that before you injected the water back into the well to get enhanced oil recovery. That's what is what it was called. So I worked on that for the majority of my time. And then there towards the end, I worked on a floating platform off in the North Sea, kind of a super early design project. So you were obviously working in processes. You were designing water floods, CO2 recoveries, working with you know the fluids within oil and gas. So what were some things you thought that made you successful at your job in oil and gas? Maybe some traits or something particular to your personality that made you successful? I think the the main thing, and it's kind of like a common trait I found throughout all engineers, is that that inherent need to know why and like why why is something working this way? Why does it work that way? Why did you do it that way? You know, I've always just had that curiosity, and typically that's basically what you're doing as engineering to use the why to make it to your advantage. So I, I think that kind of inherent ability helped me in the industry. And then Georgia Tech was a very tough, rigorous school, so I, uh, I learned humbleness real quick through. Uh, a lot of those calculus classes and uh, 
also the the perseverance you know you get that crd on a quiz and you get humbled and you have to keep at it and study harder and study longer to you know to make good grades and get out of it so that was a big thing that georgia tech taught me and then my very first boss i had still remember what he told me to this day was you know i would go and ask some questions those whys and what's and whatever you know, I was asking him and he told me this thing that now I'm telling people I'm training today is, you know, you know, I don't mind you coming to me with a question, but come to me with a question and you're an attempt at an answer. So I think I, I really took that to heart because, you know, sure, you can go ask a question, get it answered and fill in the blanks. But if you attempt it, you can go through your logic and then you can have the expert tell you, you know, the answer or what he thinks. And then it's like a combo type thing. And sometimes you can look at it from a different direction than how the industry or how it's always been looked at before. So I, I kind of took that to heart and I, I still use that to this day. You know, I always try to answer a question myself before I, I go ask somebody else. That's sage advice right there. It really is. I love that. That can really, they can really go to anything. It could be business, life, relationships. I mean, you know, I remember that you were, you had this amazing schedule where you had like, you were working four days and then 10 hour days, but you got every other Friday off or every Friday off. It was really cool and unique. So explain what was going on and what was life like right when you left the industry? Kind of what was the scenario? What were the market conditions? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I, I came in, so I graduated 2011. So I kind of came in at the height of those uh, years. Um, the times were good. I remember my dad, you know, worked 35 years in the industry, told me it's not going to last. It's going to go up and it's going to go down. It's going to go back up. So <laughs> so luckily I had that that advice too coming coming right into the industry. So, you know, I came in right at right at the the height 2011, kept working through. Yeah, we worked the four tens. So I had every Friday off because we were contractors to the bigger oil companies. Um, so 10 hour days, it, it was pretty good. I enjoyed it, you know, being young and being able to do that and having a three-day weekend. Now I work 980s, which is, you know, a four-day week and then a five-day week. I kind of like that better. The days aren't as long. You know, 10 hours is a pretty long day every day. I always thought that was so unique. Yeah. I know that you were big on volunteering just with your extra time at the at the museum and some other yep. opportunities you had. Yeah, it did let you do that and like knock out chores, you know. Why did you decide to go back and get your master's? What, what were the circumstances around leaving the oil field and why aerospace? So like while I was working still at the company, you know, you could, you kind of saw the industry going where it's heading, right? You know, I, I saw other projects around me getting canceled, people being laid off. We were still okay for, you know, three more months and then two more months, stuff like that. But you, you kind of start seeing that, that writing on the wall. Um, so then I think in 2015, I believe it was, was when my project that I was working on got uh, halted. And that was just because, you know, it was like a super pre fee type design. There was no pipe or metal even bought for it yet. So obviously the contractors are going to go first on the assets that aren't even built. So before all that happened, you see the right on the wall, I started decided looking into, there's this question I always ask myself is, you know, do I want to do this a day from now, a week from now, a month from now? year from now, a decade from now. So I started really thinking about that year and decade question. I thought, you know, maybe I could start looking into something else. And also growing up in Houston, you know, it's a space city. I've always been a huge space nerd. You know, I still like I've read books about it constantly, all that stuff. And um, <clears throat> so I started thinking, you know, maybe I could work my way down there, be really hard. You know, those people are super smart. Maybe there's a path now that I have some business experience on me. Maybe I can go get a master's closer in something to aerospace and get me there. So I started looking, I actually looked at a, a program at Rice. I forgot what it was like space studies or something like that. It was a master's program. They only like accept like six people 
a year or something like that. So uh, obviously I didn't get that one, but I did. I eventually got into uh, U of H master's program for technology project management. And I remember sitting in my first class, like really scared, like, I don't know if this is, you know, this is a lot of money. Is this actually going to pay off? But, you know, I got that stomach in my knots feeling that first class. But then they were going over kind of like the history of project management. And lo and behold, you know, it's, it's a DOD NASA thing that kind of invented the whole idea of project management. And now it's going elsewhere. So it kind of calmed me down. I figured, you know, hey, this could get me down to NASA. And if not, I'm still a chemical engineer with a project management master's. I can go back in oil and gas or wherever. So it's kind of a logical step. Um, so I started applying to that and then I got laid off in August of 2015, but then I got accepted. So I started school in January. So it was pretty kind of quick turnaround. Um, I did a couple of job applications, but that trough of the, the industry right there, not a lot of people were hiring. I had a, I had a job offer to go count valves at a plant that recently exploded in Texas city and then they pulled it on me and then they gave it back to me. So I was like, Oh man, this is, I feel like this is going to happen a lot. So that's when I kind of decided school might be the safe option, at least for a year or two. Yeah. I think a lot of people followed suit there. A lot of, I've had a lot of stories so far that have kind of ended around, or I guess re begun reemerged around that time, including mine. I mean, that was, I left in 2016. So yeah. I can totally relate. And I remember talking with you personally about a lot of this and, I could just tell that you were very passionate about it and you had a lot of energy towards this program and going to work for NASA and working on space in general. And just, you seem jaded about oil and gas. I think a lot of people can relate to that. Okay. So let's talk about space for a second. Cause I, I don't really know about aerospace. I, I see things on TV. I, I hear Elon Musk on the Joe Rogan podcast. So how did you decide that you were going to go all in on aerospace? Like, did you get an internship? Like, how did you know that this was going to be a cool job? By being that that space nerd growing up, I followed Elon and Elon and uh, SpaceX on Twitter, and you know I've you know just been reading the news articles. Um, I kind of just started seeing that you know this private space industry is starting to pick up, and now it's becoming cool again. You know, back like it was in the Apollo, Mercury, and Gemini days. Um, I feel like space kind of got routine to people, which is you know never space is never routine, as Apollo thirteen always said. You, you could kind of see the the wonder of it and the excitement around it starting to pick back up. You know, I had always wanted to be a, a flight controller. I remember I was a little kid. We went to JSC Johnson Space Center. Um, and I I don't know how old I was. It was I'd have been like six or something. So this is in the mid nineties. Back then it's pre-911. So you could just kind of walk around the space center with no guards, just like walk into buildings and talk to engineers and stuff. So I remember we walked in, talked to engineers. Um we sat in the old Apollo mission control room. And then I remember like I told my mom I wanted to be a flight controller, which is weird because every kid wants to be an astronaut. But I wanted to be a flight controller because I guess I have a thing for heights and confined spaces. <laughs> I'm not really a good astronaut. We're both tall. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't see it through the podcast. So, we're both tall. I, I nixed that just quickly. They're like, man, it's going to be too expensive to send you up. Yeah, I, I give tours and I'm constantly ducking my head to get into the old shuttle mock-ups and everything like that. So how did you get your feet wet in the industry? I mean, how did you get your internship? We all see space exploration is super cool, but how'd you know that doing the jobs was actually interesting for you? You know, going to Georgia Tech is, they have a really top-notch aerospace engineering school um, and then growing up in Houston. So I knew a couple of people, alumni who worked down there and, you know, I just kind of hear stories about, you know, oh, I went to like a lunch and learn about, you know, Apollo 13 or something like that. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then, you know, just for me, 
being a huge nerd, like everything about it was cool. We're just walking on the, the campus and, you know, seeing the the rockets when you drive in on the side, side of the road, stuff like that. Um, I kind of knew the jobs would probably be cool. Um, and I, I knew it would be like tedious, you know, it's a government job. It would be, a I was a little bit scared if I ever did get a job there, I might lose that love of space and the the wonder of it all. I kind of just started using networks to try to to try to get myself down there. Uh, I would, you know, again, Georgia Tech has a huge presence at NASA. So they, uh, including a whole bunch of astronauts. So an astronaut was given a talk to the Houston alumni chapter down in Clear Lake. Um, this was like my first semester at U of H. So kind of just drove down there, you know, not expecting anything. Worst case scenario, I hear an astronaut talk and he's from Georgia Tech. You know, our best case scenario, I meet a couple people. So yeah, I like snacks and I started chatting and I, uh, you know, I met a, a woman there who went to Georgia Tech about a year after my dad. She would kind of hang out at his fraternity house for like football games. So then like they were kind of reminiscing on mutual friends that they knew. They didn't know each other, but they knew, you know, mutual people. You know, I kind of showed up and I had just started talking about, oh, I'm recently unemployed, 27 year old unemployed uh, guy back at masters. And she was like, well, we we're looking for an intern. If you have no qualms about being an intern, I was like, I'll to be a NASA intern, even at 27. Sure. You know, I'll do it. I became a 27 year old intern. <laughs> that's awesome. So I'm guessing that's rare is what you're saying. A lot of people come out of undergrad and do that. So NASA is kind of a interesting paradigm working for it. You know, you have your, your civil servants who actually work for NASA and then the rest of us are contractors. And the majority of people down there are contractors. So those NASA civil servants are typically all undergrad NASA interns who then get like the full-time jobs. Um, you know, are there ex-contractors who have worked there for X number of years and then become a civil servant? So this was for a contractor. I still work for a contractor, but you'd be surprised how many contractors are actually working at NASA. You know, most everyone in mission control, other than the flight director, the head honcho, are contractors. Oh, wow. Okay. So what was the hiring process or what is the hiring process like for someone that might be interested in getting this job? I mean, great job using your networking. And I think the key takeaway would just be that if you're interested in an industry, start going to talk, start go seeking out alumni that may be in that network, you know, and just get involved with the industry. Yeah. I mean, especially for, for the aerospace industry and NASA, like that's, that's basically how people who get jobs there are, they network, they go to career fairs or they go to talks and they show their interest. And, you know, I know we look for people who are generally interested in space because, you know, we can't compete with those, those oil and gas salaries or Google or Amazon or, you know, those, those big guys where you're still working for a government, you're working for a non-defense contractor. So you have to find someone who's going to do the long hours and the hard work and the stress, but they're going to do it because they ultimately love the job. And that kind of helps out. So we're always looking for those people at talks and at alumni functions and, you know, People's ears perk up when they hear that you work at NASA. They want to ask you questions, you know, everything from how do you go to the bathroom in space to what do you think about the new space launch system going through the Senate and stuff like that. So, uh, I, yeah, for our industry, that's that's a huge thing. And I did it through the Georgia Tech Network, and I also did it through the Museum of Natural Science. They would do talks, and I would, you know, I found ex-employees there too and tried to ask them if they knew anybody still, but they were all old. Apollo guys. So they had all left. There's just so many different dynamics with this job versus oil and gas. I mean, oil and gas is so, I guess, financially driven. It's just all about making as much money as possible because a lot of these companies are publicly traded or, or maybe they're privately owned. But can you describe like what is different about the feeling of your job? Is it more of like a greater good? Like, how do you feel about it versus 
oil and gas where maybe you're just so profit driven? I think that's one of the biggest differences I could tell. So at NASA, we're still, you know, cost and schedule driven because we have a limited budget set every year by DC um, and we have a schedule to meet. But really, you don't really hear those as um, reasons for like working overtime or reasons for putting an extra effort or getting a project done. It's more for that bigger goal, you know, and there's signs everywhere at NASA, like, you know, flu season's going around and with this whole pandemic thing was protect the crew, protect the mission, um, mission above all else. So it's, you know, you really work to the missions and you work to those astronauts because on the end of the day, they're the ones strapping themselves to a rocket, going up to a, you know, football field size uh, space station and living up there for six months away from their family with all kinds of danger, micrometeorites, fires, you know, what, whatever, whatever could happen, you know, they're, they're up there facing it. And so us on the ground, we got to make sure that we know our stuff and don't put them in any extra harm than they already are. I really see that kind of come through in meetings and, and projects and reasons why people are working late. It is, it is for that ultimate goal of the mission and for, NASA exploration. Yeah. So I think we've, this ties in perfectly to this most recent launch where maybe you can just walk us through just quickly what happened and kind of its significance where we went to send someone, two people to the International Space Station. Yeah. The SpaceX uh, Demo 2 with uh, Doug and Bob, who are lovingly referred to as the dads down at NASA because they're both. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, it was a it was a huge deal, and it's something that NASA has been working towards for nine years, really. Um, like a brief brief history after the Columbia accident, the shuttle people started seeing the right on the wall that you know these are old pieces of equipment; they're not quite as reusable as they were hoped. They're risky. I mean, all space travel is. So maybe we need to come into the 21st century. So uh, the George W. Bush kind of, he didn't cancel the shuttle program. I mean, he did, but he had, we kept flying shuttles until the ISS was completed because that was the only way we could build the ISS was with the shuttle payload capacity. But once the ISS was completed, the shuttle stopped flying and retired. So that was 2011. Um, So that was during Obama. So Obama started the commercial crew program. Um, And that was instead of NASA building rockets, the private industry would build rockets to low earth orbit. So they gave this upcoming uh, company called SpaceX uh, this uh, contract to uh, bring our astronauts to the space station. And they gave one to Boeing, you know, a established space com- aerospace company. So there were two contracts given to them to start flying the astronauts. And then in addition to that, they kind of did a proving ground with cargo. So SpaceX started flying cargo to the ISS, you know, food, uh, experiments, tools, whatever, just to kind of prove that they could do it. And then they started building their Crew Dragon. So that came to, what, last month now, where finally SpaceX launched our NASA astronauts. I'm sure you heard it. America, American astronauts from American soil and American-made rocket for the first time since... 2011. So that was a huge, huge deal for us because we have been paying the Russians, you know, upwards of $80 million for a flight for an astronaut up to the station. So just not the capability is good. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. I watched some YouTube videos of them opening the hatch and watched it live. And I mean, it's amazing. The technology is so cool. I mean, the fact that they 
kept having to tell the, I, I saw the crew kept saying, you know, Hey, can you t- shut off the cameras? We're going to go like, you know, waste removal. Let's settle. <laughs> it's, <Yep>. like, <laughs> it's like, man, we're, we, it's amazing. We can see that live. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So yeah, I just thought it was amazing. And I know that it's timely that you're telling people about this because I'm sure they didn't necessarily understand all the backstory or how maybe you could put it into perspective. Like what does this do for you and your job in general? Like, is that just, further validation of this lifelong quest to be in the industry? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it, you know, watching, I was coming back from vacation actually. So we, me and my girlfriend stopped off at a, a rest stop and watched the launch on my, on my iPhone and a rest stop in uh, Mississippi, you know, and I got the, the goosebumps all over again, watching them launch and, you know, seeing the NASA worm on the side of the rocket with the American flag was great. Um, you know, and, and that's just like the, the space nerd in me, but you know, I also know just how cheap it is. You know, SpaceX is launching $55 million an astronaut versus the 80 we're paying the Russians. Boeing is about the price of the Russians, but that's a whole nother story. You know, you get that redundancy and safety of having multiple crude capsules able to go to the station. So something happens with a Soyuz rocket, which is what the Russians use. Um, last November, they had an abort during a launch. So they got grounded and we had no access to the ISS for about a month or two. But, you know, now that we got a, a backup, we can always just go, you know, rescue them if we need to. Um, so it, it really helps my job because you have that redundancy. You know that we're going to have astronauts, U.S., European, Japanese, Canadian, Russian cosmonauts all all launching. We can still do our jobs. Um, and then it's also exciting because that cheaper access to low Earth orbit allows NASA to not focus as much since we have to build this rocket or this capsule, we can focus on building the moon rocket and capsule. And since we have this cheap access, we can send up astronauts to the station. They can do training, get their space legs on them. And then, you know, they can go on to, to the moon and Mars maybe. So it, it helps my job currently because I have more astronauts to, to work with, but it also helps NASA long-term look forward beyond low earth orbit. And maybe I can transition into something like that. I'm picturing that 40, 50 years ago, if you wanted to be in aerospace, you joined Boeing or NASA directly or worked for a contractor for them. But now we see in the news, Elon Musk, SpaceX, Richard Branson, Virgin, Jeff Bezos, Blue Origin, and all this these powerful people are pumping money in. So would you say on the whole, the space industry is booming? It's probably the best time to get into the space industry in the whole history of the industry, I would say. But I mean, you're you're looking at a 60-year long industry, so there's not a lot of uh, history to go on. Back in the Apollo days, you would work for the contractors. So Boeing, Rockwell, North American, Grumman, you know, all those um, who've like have all merged and stuff now. But now you got that that cheap, you know. Back then, all those contractors worked for NASA. They were working on NASA rockets. They were working on government contracts. But now you got the private industry just booming. You can, you know, you have DirecTV's up there. SpaceX is launching their Starlink satellites to give internet to the whole world based on satellites, making the astronomers angry because they're, you know, whatever. That's a whole nother, another topic as well. But, you know, that that type of availability and um, I guess profit is there currently. So you could go work for these SpaceX and you could go work for Blue Origin with Bezos or the Virgin Galactic, which is the whole tourist industry, like you said. Um, there's all kinds of rocket companies. You know, Rocket Lab is launching a, a rocket here in the next couple of weeks and they have these cool, slick carbon fiber black rockets that uh, that look awesome. And they're going to start collecting their rockets by a helicopter 
before it lands. So it's it's kind of a cool, innovative time. And I'm not really quite, you know, I can't see the future, but I, I can't imagine it going down from here. I can only see it going up with more technology and more ease of access to low Earth orbit. So we just, with SpaceX and Boeing, we've opened up the ISS to non-NASA astronauts. So theoretically in, you know, five years, you can pay SpaceX and Boeing for a flight to the ISS and go to the ISS. I mean, it'll probably be a little out of our uh, budgets, but I think I saw Tom Cruise was talking about filming a movie up there. Uh, the idea is like you get like, I don't know, say Coca-Cola could send a person up there and film a commercial on the ISS or do a specific experiment for whatever, like pharmaceutical, like could send a pharmaceutical engineer or biochemist or something and do zero gravity tests up there for themselves and keep all that technology and information to themselves. Whoa, okay. So we're truly on the cusp of space tourism where you can go up in a, in a space suit strapped to a rocket for entertainment purposes or for scientific missions that are completely independently funded outside of the government and you can go up as a civilian. I mean, this is crazy. And so I think the next logical question is, as a society that funds space exploration and science uh, through the ISS and other missions, what are some important things that we should know as people that don't spend all day in the industry thinking about space travel and may just be casual sitting on the sidelines? To me, the, the greatest thing that NASA and space exploration does is kind of, you know, why I'm here is that that inspiration and the hope for the future, I guess. So, you know, NASA has always been a civilian program. We you can look up the pictures. All of our pictures come down if they're not medically sensitive. They they go out to public use um, because it's all taxpayer money. You know, I we give tours of people all the time for free because that's the American citizens pay for it. So that, that inspiration and hope helped those people, you know, why, why did Bezos and Elon get into the space industry after making billions is because, you know, they were inspired by Apollo as kids to make those billions. So you never know, like, you know, what, how many kids were watching the, the SpaceX launch and seeing Doug and Bob go up there. And now they want to get into science and they want to get into engineering and math. And, you know, that, that inspiration is something you can't really put a price tag on. And I think people see it, but they kind of miss how important it is to the future of the country and the world, I would say. So, I mean, you, you can sit here and list off why NASA's $10 on the dollar return of, you know, on the tax dollars on technology and new materials to the the economy are, you know, like the big thing I always show is the the shuttle docking algorithms and the software programs to dock to the station they use now in uh, LASIK surgery to patch up the laser on the eyeballs. I could rattle off, there's a whole page of it on the NASA website of that technology that goes into the, the economy and helps everything. But I think that that inspiration and that hope you know, is a huge thing. And the 60s was a tumultuous time. You had, you know, war in Vietnam, you had racial injustice going on in our country, but Apollo 8 circled their moon in 1968. There's like two assassinations that year. And someone wrote the astronauts saying, you know, thank you for saving 1968. And I think that's, that's a super cool thing to be a part of. And, you know, we're, we're fighting a lot of those same fights today. And I hope that NASA can continue to, to give that hope and inspiration to people. Man, those are some really interesting examples of technology and then also societal changes that we see directly from space exploration. Thanks for sharing those. 
So yeah, I too, from a young age, had that strong interest in space exploration and space travel. When I was in elementary, I actually went to space camp down in Huntsville, Alabama for two summers. So I got to have the freeze-dried food and like do all the simulators and learn about the rockets when I was younger. I'm super jealous. I always wanted to be on a double dare, was it? To, to, to try to win that, that trip to space camp. Yeah, I know. I'm just really lucky and fortunate that we had family that lived near Huntsville, Alabama. So it was just a natural place for my parents to drop me off and then go visit our family while I was at camp. It was super convenient. So we, we talked a lot about NASA. We talked about how you got here, but what do you actually do there? Right. So as you said, is I was a, I'm a payload systems engineer. So basically that's just fancy talk. Of I'm a mission controller for the payloads that go to the ISS. Um, and then payloads in the aerospace industry is kind of the cargo, our science in my case. So it's everything not related to keeping the ISS running and all of the, um, the life systems working. I'm more of all the science that's going on the space station. And then specifically, I do all, a lot of human research, all the human research that's done on the ISS. And so I'm in charge of the equipment on the ISS that helps do the human research for the astronauts. So stuff like that includes like an ultrasound unit on board. We kind of help from the ground, get all the video routed to the ground so that remote guiders can tell the astronauts how to do an ultrasound scan on themselves because obviously not all of them are ultrasound techs. Uh, we also do, I'll turn on a centrifuge so that the astronauts will draw their own blood, stick their blood tubes in a centrifuge, spin it, and then put it in the freezer for it to come down later on a SpaceX cargo mission or something like that. So we're kind of the experts of the hardware that does the human research. So I don't really do all the science behind it. We are just kind of the operations ground units who help put in place the science experiments and then get the science to the actual PhDs on the ground to do that science and to learn how microgravity is affecting the astronauts and long duration space trips for future missions. No, that's cool. And I'm guessing that, you know, you've worked with a lot of astronauts and what do they say space feels like? Like it seems so abstract. I remember watching the bachelor one time and they did one of those zero G flights where they get like five seconds of weightlessness. And that just seemed really abstract. So the fact that, you know, people may be touring up there and feeling it for themselves as civilians seems crazy to me. So how did the astronauts describe it? Yeah, they definitely describe it as a lot of fun. They talk about how it feels like a really good stretch uh, without the gravity going on. They can gain up to about an inch in height. So that really makes them feel good as, you know, kind of a really nice long stretch. They always enjoy kind of like bouncing around the walls and, you know, flying through uh, playing with the, we always kind of see them before they'll go on like uh, public affairs videos and stuff. And you can kind of see them playing with microphones, flipping them around or bouncing stuff between their hands and stuff like that. So you can kind of see the kids come out of them, but, uh, you know, a lot of them really enjoy the spacewalks and seeing the views. And that's always the number one, one, number one thing they like to, to say is the best part is the view of earth and then doing the spacewalks. I guess I never really thought about the fact that if you go up in space and you get sick, even though you're not really around other people, or if you come down with some kind of illness, I mean, you have to have everything up there self-sufficient. Are there any like quick stories or anecdotes you could tell just kind of like stuff you've done in your job to help out? That's actually, it's actually pretty interesting because we have the only ultrasound unit on station. There's also like a full pharmacy from what I hear. Uh, so there's, 
there's probably every pill that they could ever need. And then most, some of the astronauts are medical doctors as well, which always helps out for those ultrasound scans. I guess a year ago now, two years ago, maybe there was, um, an astronaut who experienced a blood clot on station. And it's the first time that's ever happened in history. And since we're the only ultrasound on station, we got called, you know, hey, in 24 hours, you got to do an ultrasound scan on this astronaut. And typically we plan these things months in advance. And then we have like two weeks of preparing our command plans and going over the timelines to make sure everything looks good. But this one was, you know, we got to see what's going on in this astronaut to figure out how serious it is. You know, and there was talk of, you know, bringing that astronaut down to the ground. Um, and, you know, just the unknown of having that blood clot on station 250 miles away. That was a really interesting shift for me because of the quick turnaround. Uh, then you had a whole bunch of like big wigs in the room. You know, normally it's just us, but, you know, we had like specialist doctors, uh, the spouse, other astronauts to help the spouse know what was going on. It just got, you know, wrote up in the New England Journal of Medicine just a couple months ago. And it was kind of cool seeing, you know, a paragraph talking about how a rush ultrasound scan had to be uh, occurred to, to figure out what was going on. And I was like, oh, look, that's me. <laughs> I've never actually been like in a journal like that. So that was pretty cool. And it, it kind of helped also reaffirm like this job of how important it is and how necessary we have to be ready to go on a moment's notice for the crew health and safety. It probably feels like the hurry up and wait mentality a lot of the time. And then there's, you know, something crazy happens and you luckily you're prepared. So we go like on our shift about two hours before the astronauts even get close to doing their things, just in case they go early that we're ready to go. Or if we have issues, we have time to fix it. So our time's a lot cheaper than astronauts time. <laughs> if you like the joke. <laughs> As someone that has successfully had, you know, your soul searching experience and transition to a new industry while, you know, shifting your passion or keeping your passion. Do you have any advice for finding a new career path or digging deep to find your passion? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Cause you know, everyone, everyone's interests and souls are kind of different, I guess. So it, it's hard. I mean, for me, it was obvious. Cause that was, that was something I grew up wanting to do. It was a childhood dream type thing. I kind of started poking around on the internet. You know, I found a couple of books about like, you know, how to, how to be a good employee in the aerospace industry that I read. Just started looking for those networking opportunities you know, the Georgia Tech one kind of fell in my lap because I already already get the alumni emails. But, you know, I started going out of my way, going to like talks at Rice. They have like a monthly chat through uh, aerospace stuff and uh, the museum, stuff like that. So I guess it, I don't know if I can give advice on how to soul search. I think you just have to do that yourself. You know, ask yourself what what interests you and go back to that question. What what do you want to be doing a day, week, month, year, decade from now? You know, if you can answer that, if, I think that's what you start looking towards. And then, then you can find the resources pretty easily after that. And then the, the other important thing is, you know, having a really good support system behind you. I think that kind of, uh, it doesn't get enough credit where it, where it de- deserves. So, you know, I, I remember you and I talking about it at parties or bars or whatever, uh, just about, you know, how, how's the NASA search going or you got anything good coming on? And, you know, I'd ask you about how rice was going and what are your plans after rice? You know, and there's countless other individuals who did that or, you know, every time I had a setback, you know, not getting into rice for me or, you know, not getting a job, them having my back and saying, oh, that's fine. You'll, you'll find a better job. You know, you weren't even hundred percent on this one. So just be patient keep working at it. And I, 
I think that's really helpful as well. So if you surround yourself and people like that, they'll help you get there and they'll make you want to prove them right. Not so much the naysayers wrong, but prove the people who believe in you right. You know, I got a whole list of people I could spout off, but we'll keep the podcast short for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, that's so important. And I, you mentioned, you know, taking some time for yourself and then really reaching out to within your network, but then also having that strong safety net around you or that support system around you. Really cool, man. So, so you mentioned in the, the intro that you're a big reader and uh, I know you've probably got a few books or podcasts or references that you'd love to tell us about. So what are some key references you'd recommend for people? One book I always reference or, you know, tell people to go read is uh, a book called Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. Uh, so she's a historian, real famous, but she wrote uh, this book about Abraham Lincoln's presidential cabinet. And he basically took all of his old rivals, obviously from the name, like his old, uh, basically the p- politicians he beat in the primaries to get the Republican nom and all of his old adversaries who tried to prove him wrong. He eventually made them into his presidential cabinet. And it's a real interested read about how to make a successful team out of, you know, contrarian thinkers, but also really being able to listen to someone who doesn't agree with you and taking that as a uh, positive. So I always recommend that one. And then on to, I guess, more space reference books. Uh, the first one is Flight by Chris Craft. So Chris Craft is the original uh, flight director. He invented mission control back way before Al Shepard went up. So he is the mission control building is named after him down at Johnson Space Center. So everyone knows Gene Krantz is the flight director with the buzz head and the, the vest from Apollo 13. But Chris Craft is the guy who was the original. So his book is all about just it's a really good leadership book about how you can take all these smart, like-minded, motivated people, make them into a team and make them work together. So I I think that's a good one. Um, A lot of those Apollo flight controllers say their best moment wasn't Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon, but when Chris Kraft slapped him on the back and told him a good job. So that's how how revered he was with his team. Some good ones are uh, Pale Blue Dot by Carl Sagan. It really helps help me kind of kind of close in on what I wanted to do and realize, you know, the world's a small place and you're only here for a limited time. So kind of do what you love. And if you don't want to read it, go YouTube him narrating the pale blue dot speech. And it's pretty powerful kind of kind of live that way. And then also JFK's rice speech is a good space, uh, space YouTube watch or just listen to it. You know, it's still pretty relevant to today, even though it's spoken over 50 years ago. One, that's one of those they show you when you go to Rice. They show it, the speech of him in the football stadium. It's- oh, I'm sure. Yeah, it's great. You know, he's joking about the Houston Heat in there and all kinds of good stuff. So, if if anyone actually does jump onto the YouTube and watch that, make sure to look at the notes too because it's crazy. He wrote in some of those jokes that uh, he lands about UT versus Rice and stuff like that. So, yeah, <laughs> and those are great references. So we'll I'll make sure to have all the links to Team of Rivals, Flight, and Pale Blue Dot. And then also the link to JFK visits Rice football stadium. And then finally, you know, I know this has probably got some people's gears turning their, their heads are in the clouds. And so if someone has a follow-up question or wants to connect with you, what's the best method to get in touch? 
LinkedIn's probably the best way. You know, that's I guess why it's there. But uh, I'm not too active on Facebook or Twitter. LinkedIn, I'll I'll I get those emails if someone messaged me and I could I could respond. I'd love to help out. That was one of my things once I got down there. I was I told myself I'd I'd help others like me who are interested in space and how to get there. So I'd be happy to answer questions or whatever. Okay, that's easy enough. Add Jonathan Kemp. That's K E M P on LinkedIn. He's available to answer your questions regarding space careers history, and Houston barbecuing. You know, if you enjoyed the podcast, please consider writing and leaving a five-star review in iTunes for the X Oilfield Resource Podcast. It's a no-cost way to help the show reach a wider audience. Thank you to the many listeners that email me, read at xoilfield.com, or connect with me on LinkedIn to give their feedback or future guest recommendations. This week, I received two fantastic recommendations for engineers in Australia, which is so cool. I'll definitely be reaching out and trying to add more international guests if possible. And finally, thank you, Jonathan, for joining us today and sharing your story so candidly. It was an out of this world interview and I know it inspired professionals to connect with you on LinkedIn and learn more about the space industry. Oh, thanks for having me, Reed. I always love sharing my story and getting people involved in space. So it's my pleasure.